Several years ago, a true story was told of a man who got up early one Saturday morning and went down to a local grocery store to pick up a few items that he and his wife might cook for breakfast. Shortly after arriving there, he realized that peculiar smell was coming out from underneath the hood, so he opened the hood there to see what it was and found that a cat, apparently, the night before had crawled underneath there to get warm and had gotten tangled in the fan belt and, well, to say it plainly, it was just too late for the cat at that point. And so he closed the hood and went on in the grocery store there and got the items that he needed. But when he came out, he brought an extra shopping bag with him. And he popped the hood and proceeded to pull the cat from the engine and finally placed it inside of that shopping bag, closed the hood, and set the bag on top of the car. He then turned and went back into the grocery store to wash his hands. And when he came out, he noticed very quickly a lady standing beside the car. And as we would say it, she was just too close for comfort. Something about her was strange. So he paused for a moment to watch and see what she might be doing, and immediately he saw her pick up the shopping bag and run across the street into a local donut shop. And when he saw that, he chuckled. <laughs> he thought to himself, boy, this is going to be good. And so he followed her across the street into that donut shop, and about the time he came through the door, he looked to his right and noticed her in the back corner. And she was sitting there holding the bag, and when she opened it, she let out a quick screech and passed out cold in the floor. The shop owner was excited and disturbed by this, so he immediately then turned and called the ambulance. And when the ambulance arrived, the woman had kind of come to, but she was not really at herself. She couldn't explain what had happened, so they placed her up on the stretcher and were proceeding to carry her on to the emergency room. And as they were pushing her out the door, the man then looked in the corner and noticed that same sack with the cat in it, undisturbed. And he quietly walked over and picked it up, placed it upon her chest, and said, Ma'am, you forgot your package. Now I'll admit, when I first heard that story, I thought to myself, Boy, if anyone has ever, have ever gotten what they deserve, certainly it was her. The thoughts of stealing a man's groceries or stealing a man's bag. And yet she received nothing but a dead cat. Boy, that, that's really, that's payback. But the more I think about it, the more I realize that ought not be the attitude of a child of God's. We have to realize, as one man said, that any man can live life on either one of three levels. Many a man live life on what he called the hellish level. And what that implies is that when good is done to you, you in turn return with evil. Others more likely live life on what you might call the human level. And that is to say that when evil is done unto you, evil is to be returned. But yet when good is done unto you, good is to be returned. And it ought to be returned with joy. But you know, we ought not live on either of those levels. Christians ought to be living on a heavenly level, which is to say that when evil is done unto you, good is to be returned. And if you open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 38 under this heading, A mile that we must walk. 
The Scriptures began and read as this. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. In verse 40, if any man will sue thee at law, and take away thine coat, let him have thine cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Now we're all familiar with verse 41, are we not? It's a verse that teaches us as children of God's that we ought to go the extra mile. It's a verse that reminds us that in everything that we do, whether it be worshiping God, whether it be striving to achieve in this life or the helping of others, that we ought to be willing to go the extra mile. But friends, we call it an extra mile. Jesus calls it a mile that we must walk. Three things I want you to notice from the text. The first one bears it out in what Jesus says there in verse 38. When he very plainly says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Here Jesus, to begin with, teaches us what I would consider to be a principle. And he teaches us the principle by showing us a very simple comparison. He compares for us what I would call the mandated mile, in man's eyes at least. He compares the mandated mile with what I would in turn call the master's mile. Because the master's mile is a mile that Jesus commands us to walk. But when you think about this verse, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it expresses that because in that day and time it was literally the case under the law of Moses that you could take a man to court and if he had, say, taken out your eye or taken out your tooth, you could literally have the judge to make a judgment where either his eye or tooth would be taken away as a punishment for what they had done unto you. But likewise... That man's eye or tooth did not have to literally be removed because oftentimes the judge might only ask of you that you pay the price of that eye or that tooth. You say, well, how would they come up with that? Well, basically they did it like this. They knew in that day and time that a slave, for instance, who was taken and placed upon an auction block, let's assume that this is a male slave and that he's muscular and he's well-built and he's strong and all these things are going for him. Let's say that he's complete. He has a good mental ability to him and so he's valuable to you. Let's suppose for a moment that this slave would be placed upon an auction block and the sum of $100 would be paid for him. Now let's suppose that the exact same slave, let's suppose that he's placed upon the auction block, but now he has a flaw. One of his eyes is missing, so he doesn't have quite the ability that he once had. Maybe he's not that severely impaired, but he doesn't have quite the ability that he once had. So now the slave that only one day before was worth $100 is now only worth 75 now we can do the simple mathematical equation to find out that the price of the eye was therefore $25. And so the judge could say, pay the sum of $25 
or give up your eye, however you want to work it. But there was a problem with that. The problem lied in that when these people, when they would interpret the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that they would actually misinterpret the law because they would not apply it as it ought to have been and only was to be applied inside of the courtroom, they would in turn apply it to the everyday lives. You see, what they were guilty of doing really was they were guilty of walking a mandated mile and trying to apply it as the reactive and the equal. They were basically like so many today might try to do. They were saying, if you were to take out my eye, you're t- I'm going to take yours out. I'm going to do it right here and right now. If you are to take out my tooth, then you deserve the same. Let me do it right now. Let me punch you right in the mouth. If you were to offend me, I'll offend you. And you can go on and on and on down the list and the litany of things that we have decided, I know in our mind, is good, upright, so we say, upstanding Christians. Well, that's just what they deserve. They do evil to me, I'll do evil unto them. Friends, the law was never intended to be used in that way. It was a law that was designed to be used only by the judges inside of a courtroom and never was it intended to be used by individuals out on the street. If you think about what God tells us through the pen of Paul, Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, he says, Therefore vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. For in our lives that we walk today as Christians, when we are persecuted, when we are played against, when we are harmed, when we are insulted, when we are hurt, the real reward for those people or the real recompense, the real retaliation that is to be taken is to be taken by God, not man. Now that's not to say that if we're harmed or someone comes up and they proceed to harm us that we ought not defend ourselves. And that's not to say that if someone were to harm us or to take from us that we do not have the right to go into a courtroom and to have the law to be applied. That's what Jesus is encouraging them to do. That's what he's commanding them to do. But we ought not be taking out personal vengeance. You see, in their mind, this law had nothing to do with anything except the reactive and the equal, but there was something else wrong here. They understood the law to have to do with the required and the expected. Basically, these men and women, and we'll talk about a group of them in just a moment, they lived their lives on what you might call a minimum morality and by the pattern of a loveless legalism. They said, you tell me absolutely the bare minimum that is required of me to be seen moral in the eyes of men and in the eyes of God, and I'll do that. And you tell me absolutely what is to be done where I can be legal under the court systems and legal in the eyes of God, and I'll do that, but I don't plan on practicing any form of love. You say, how could people be that way? And how, preacher, can we know that they were? Well, in the same context, really, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. You read it, the Bible says, For I say unto you, that's Jesus speaking, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Watch it, don't miss it. Ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now we have to remind ourselves who these scribes and Pharisees were. Well, basically, in today's terms, they were predominantly the uppity people of the day. 
And basically, in our terms, the way that we view them many times, because they're the ones who are constantly questioning Jesus, constantly calling Jesus up to, to judge Him, to make judgments against Him, and to try to trip Him up, embarrass Him. We say, well, they're bad, bad people. Well, I understand that from that perspective, but they were not all bad. You see, the problem that lied within the scribes and the Pharisees especially had to do with the fact that they were so legalistic and they were always seeking only to perform what was required and expected of them. So they had basically taken the law of Moses and broken it down into tiny, tiny, minute pieces. And they were willing in everything to do exactly, and I say exactly, what God would command of them to do, but they were only willing to do that. They weren't willing to apply anything to their lives that God had not specifically, by thus saith the Lord, applied into their lives. You see, oftentimes we live our lives today under the New Testament pattern of things, and we have to live not just under God's passages, but we live under God's principles. There are certain principles that God applies to us, and they're universal. It does not matter if you're in Corinth in the first century or if you're in Philadelphia, Mississippi in the 21st century. It doesn't matter because the things apply. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they weren't that way. But Jesus said, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no likewise, meaning there's not a chance, you'll make your way into heaven. And we need to focus on that, friends. Because too many of my brethren today, unfortunately, I can fall in this category, and by the way, I have in the past, we look and we say, God, what do you want me to do? God, do you want me to worship you on the Lord's day? Because I find a scripture in the Bible that claims that the apostles came upon the first day of the week to break bread. It claims that we are to come upon the first day of the week to give of our means. And so therefore, the Lord's day, I understand, God, that's yours. And I understand that's holy. But God, what about coming back on Wednesday night? Or God, what about when the elders ask me to come to a gospel meeting? Man, that thing lasts all week. Do I really have to do it? It's sad, but I've even heard a discussion recently in our own Bible classes where the question was asked. I don't remember who asked it or how it got started. But the question was asked, do we really have to come back on Sunday night? Because isn't that just a tradition? Doesn't that go back to a time way back when people didn't have transportation and they only came one time, so why should we? Friends, how can we say that we're exceeding what the scribes and the Pharisees were willing to do when we only do what they do? You think about each and every act of worship that we participate in, whether it be the singing or the giving or the partaking of the Lord's Supper, the listening to the preaching and the teaching that is done and so forth, all the acts of worship that are involved for us, the prayers that are offered up, how can we say that we're doing what God would have for us to do unless we are able to go beyond what the scribes and the Pharisees were willing to do? They were willing to follow the thus saith the Lord's, but if anything were ever asked of them beyond that, they were unwilling to follow it. So the first thing Jesus does, by the way, of this principle, he makes a simple comparison. He compares the mandated mile up against now what we're calling the master's mile. 
What is the master's smile? Well, it bears itself out in the whole of the text. But basically, to explain the master's smile at this point, it went beyond the reactive and the equal. It would go beyond the required and the expected, and it would go to exceed the expected. In the illustration of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, what would have happened in that case? If you knocked a man's eye out, you might give both your eyes his payment. You say, that's ridiculous. That's the way Jesus is going to apply this in just a moment. It has to do with a man who says, if you do good unto me, I'll do good unto you. Maybe if you cook me a pot of beans, I'll cook you a pot of beans. No, under the law of Christ, if he cooks you a pot of beans, you cook him a pot of beans and throw in some cornbread. I know that sounds silly. Under this mandated mile, you wouldn't have done so, but under the master's mile, you exceed what is expected of you. Not only do you exceed the expected, i tell you what else it would do. It would enforce the excellent. Can you not see even now, before we even discuss the text, can't you see that if you do these types of things, if you go beyond what is expected for you, that it would enforce others to do that same excellent thing? That others could look to you and they could say, well, I don't know what it is about that person, but when anything arises in their life where they feel like they owe me or they feel obligated to assist me or whatever it is, they're always willing to do more. They're always willing to outdo me in this. Now you can see the beauty in that. Because ultimately it gets to a point where you might even say it would expand the establishment. And when I say the establishment, I mean the Lord's church. God-given, divinely instituted, the Lord's church, the church of our Lord, as He would tell Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. That church is expanded when His people, when they walk in the Master's mile. You see, the mandated mile, that is nothing more than an obligation. God, what would you have me to do? I'll do it. But the Master's mind, my friend, that is a grand and glorious opportunity. Doors are open when we walk in the Master's mind. But I would not that you would only see the principle, Jesus' simple comparison. But likewise, I want you to notice with me what we're going to call the practice. And that is a Savior's command. What is the practice? Now here's where we spend our time in the text. Remember verse 38 said, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Then Jesus interjects, as he's done so many times in the text preceding this, and he says in verse 39, But I say unto you. Now who is Jesus? Who is he to tell us anything? Well, he's the Son of God for one. And according to John 1, verses 1 to 3, he is God. So we better perk up and listen. He says, but I say unto you that you resist not evil. Now what that means is don't try to be standing up for your rights and telling evil that, that they deserve whatever's coming to them. That you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now underneath the category that we're using here that this is the practice, a Savior's command, I want you to notice this master's mile is a master's mile of leniency. 
It's a master's mile of leniency. What does that mean? Well, he says it literally here. If a man should smite thee, slap thee on the right cheek, what are you to do? You say, well, you know, i tell you what, you slap me, I'll slap you. No, no, that's not what he said. He said, turn to him the other also. Now, in all these things we're going to discuss, some have proposed that what Jesus is teaching is that we ought to be doormats to the world. That we ought to just let the whole world run over us and we're to be passive in everything. We're never to defend ourselves, never to stand up for our rights. That's not the case. Again, even in the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we have rights, but those rights are underneath the courts of law. They're not in personal retaliation here. So he says, if a man smites thee on the right cheek, turn to him the left. Now, what does that mean? Friends, I'll tell you something. It didn't have a whole lot to do with the injury. Or if you want to injure someone, you ball up a fist. Or you take something in your hand, a bat or something, and you smite them on the cheek with that. Now there you're doing some damage. But an open-handed slap, although sometimes painful, normally does very little damage. And so it's not about injury. It's more about insult. And that's what it was for a Jew. You could not insult a Jew anymore. There was nothing that you could do that would insult a Jew anymore than to slap him. That was degrading. Remember the night that Jesus was preparing to be crucified? He's going in and out of these courts, and kangaroo courts they were, and oftentimes what was being done to him, the Bible records that these men were slapping or smiting him on the cheek, and that they were, watch it, spitting on him. I suppose in our society, this slap of the Jews is more like us being spat upon. Nobody wants to be spat on. Nobody wants to be slapped. It's insulting. It's degrading. It's debasing. What did Jesus say then? He said, you be lenient. It's the master's mile of leniency. When a man smites thee on the right cheek, turn to him the left. Really what he's saying here is walk off. Take the insult and go. What's the big deal is the way I might interpret it, in my mind at least. But not only. Not only can we see this practice, a Savior's command, can we see it as being a master's mile of leniency, he tells us here, it's likewise a master's mile of legalities. Verse 40 to read it again. And if any man will sue thee at law, and take away thine coat. Underline that word, you'll need it. Let him have thine cloak also. What does that mean? What he's describing here is that if you are taken to a courtroom, and if you're taken to a courtroom, let's suppose that you're taken and you have done wrong against someone. You are guilty as charged. And let's say that because you're guilty, you plan to go into the courtroom and you plan to plead guilty, so you've wasted no time with any form of representation or attorney, and you're doing what any good Christian ought to do. If you do wrong, just own up to it. Tell the truth. Now you walk into the courtroom and you say, Judge, I want to tell you I'm guilty as charged. I did do this crime or this offense against this person, and therefore I owe them something. Let's say the judge slaps his gavel down and he says, that's right, you owe them your coat. Now, we need not understand this the way it's interpreted here. 
The coat in that day wasn't what we would think of as being a coat. It had more to do with just the regular garment that would be worn. To us, it might be equal to a shirt. And so basically what the judges said is rather than you paying restitution in any form of monetary giving, I want you to give him the shirt off your back. Now, is that difficult to do? Sometimes. But they, like in our society, not nearly to the extent, but they had more than one shirt. And so they would just easily pull the shirt off and give it to the man. And under an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, if the judge said the shirt is to be paid, then you've given your eye, you've given your tooth, proverbially. But Jesus told us more. Jesus in turn tells us when he takes away your coat, give him your cloak. Now what is that? Well, the cloak for them was basically an outer garment. It was a wrap, a long flowing wrap. It's the one that we recognize as being worn, at least in the movies, in Jesus' day. It was long and flowing and it kept out the elements. In the day it kept out the sun. In the night it kept out the cool breezes and the cold. They would take the garment sometimes and pull it over their heads as the cover when the sandstorms would come around and such. It was just protection for them. But it was more than that. Because in that day, that outer garment or the cloak was basically equal to our bed and blanket. Now, that may have been a matter of choice. It may have been a matter of just how rich or poor they were. But in general, it was their bed and blanket. And so legally, legally, my friend, according to Exodus chapter 22, if a man were to take you to court, he could not, by the judgment of the law, he could not take away the cloak or the outer garment, bed and blanket, save it would be returned every night. You couldn't take away a man's cloak. He could take away the coat, that is the shirt, but he couldn't take away the cloak, that is the bed and blanket. But, but Jesus says unto us, when a man takes away your coat, give him your cloak also. Permanently. Say, here, I owe you more than that. I want to show you that I am a good person. I want to show you that I'm genuine, I'm sincere, and I'm loving. And I want to show you I'm truly sorry. Godly sorrow worketh repentance. That's the kind of sorrow we're talking about here. Godly sorrow. I want to show you I'm sorry for what I did. Is that going the extra mile? Oh, yes, it is. But not only would Jesus speak here of going the extra mile so far as leniency, he would speak of going the extra mile in the legalities. He would also speak of going the extra mile in our labor. Verse 41, the verse that we're most familiar with, he said, if any man should compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Now I just want you to think for a moment. Jesus is in the midst of what we call today the Sermon on the Mount. And you can only suppose there are droves, there are multitudes, crowds of people there listening. And he's been speaking now, in our minds at least, through the majority of the chapter. And if it's like anybody does today, I'll tell you as a gospel preacher, before long, if you're not careful, uh, you'll begin to slip away. Maybe some were actually beginning to nod. Maybe their heads were beginning to bob. Or maybe their attention had just been lost. And they're staring out watching a bird over on a hill. I don't know what it would have been, but I want to tell you something. In the mind of most of these men, and most of them here at this point listening to Jesus, early in this ministry as we like to call it, most of them were Jews. 
And when Jesus said, if a man would compel thee to go a mile, go with them twain, I'm going to tell you, head snapped, eyes open, and the attention was regained. Why? Well, the practice began with the Persians. The Persians had basically established a postal system, and that postal system was mainly for the government's use, mainly for the military, and basically what was said and done was if a messenger were to be carrying a message for the king, if he gets worn and he gets tired, he could basically tap any citizen of Persia on the shoulder and say, hey, take this on to the next stop for me, please. And he would do it. But the Romans... And by the way, the Romans were over the Jews at this point. They had subjugated them. The Romans had changed that. They had actually built it into the law, and the majority of the time it was used by the military men, and it basically said this. If a Roman soldier is walking along the road, and he is weary, he is tired, he can tap a Jewish citizen on the shoulder and say, carry my pack, and he had no choice. As a matter of fact, history tells us most Jewish boys and men they despised this practice. They couldn't stand being put in as a slave, basically, by a Roman soldier. They despised it so much, so they knew they had to do it under law. So they had actually paced off the sum of a thousand paces, that was their mile, a thousand paces from their home in any given direction, and had established a stake or a mark on a tree or a stone that reminded them, your mile is up. And they wouldn't go any farther. But Jesus said, If a man would compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Is that the extra mile? Oh, yes. But he doesn't stop here just with leniency. He doesn't stop with only the legalities. He doesn't stop with only our labors. He stops when he gets to our loans. The very next verse, verse 42, says this. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him, watch it, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. You think about that. Jesus said if a man should ask you for help, give it to him. If a man desires to borrow from you, do it. Don't turn him away. Now I want to focus on the phrase, turn him not away. Really the phrase here could be interpreted more clearly to say do not offend him. Back up in verse 39 when he said resist not evil, what he's really saying there, he's saying don't offend the evil one. Don't make things worse. Show them you're a better person. And he's saying down here, don't you turn a man away so he could have, you know, he could be offended in the way that you've acted toward him. Now, is Jesus saying that every single person that has ever come up to you on the street, you got to give and give and give? Empty your pocketbooks, empty your checking accounts, your 401ks? No. And he's not speaking of giving to those who want. He's only speaking of giving to those who need. And there's a difference. Many people out there today who are begging, they want, but they're not in need. And we have to sometimes be the judge of that. But overall, when you give to him that asketh thee, and when you give to him that would borrow, you give to anyone and everyone that you feel fit to do, and you're not offending. He said, turn thee not away. 
But within his context, what is he saying? Will you think about it? He's saying if the man who slapped you on the cheek should come and ask to borrow, you give it to him. You say, whoa, no, wait, whoa, wait a minute. No, he's in need. He's in need, and regardless if he is insulted and offended, you give it to him. The next scenario, he discussed the man who's taking you to court. He's taking away your coat. You've given your cloak. You've already done. Now he comes and he's in need. He needs to borrow of you. He said, don't turn him away. That Roman soldier comes to you and he's already two or three times he's been by your house and he's used you to walk that mile. You walk those miles. You've done what was expected and required of you. And he now needs to borrow a cup of water. Turn him not away. Is that going the extra mile? Yes, in man's eyes. But it's not extra. It's the master's mile. One mile is mandated by men. The other is given by the master. Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, she shall in no likewise enter the kingdom of heaven. We've already spoken about the principle. That is a simple comparison. We've spoken now about the practice that is a Savior's command. Now I want to close this morning by speaking to you about the power. And that is a supreme conclusion. I say it's a supreme conclusion because it is a conclusion that men and women normally do not come to all on their own. It's came to by the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He concludes this. You say, well, I don't see where he says a word about it. He taught it all the way through the text. The power of the Master's smile is found in the supreme conclusion, and that is because, friends, the Master's smile is a mile of character. It will change your attitude toward other men. No doubt. You take, for instance, the mile there in verse 41. And you consider that, and that first mile that would have been walked, it would be a slave mile. The Roman soldiers come and he says, walk with me. You have no choice. You're a slave of his as you walk that mile. But when you enter into the second mile, it becomes a smile mile. You've done it out of free will. You've done it out of choice. You see, in the beginning, in the first mile, you were a victim. And all the way, you're walking the mile. You're kicking up dust. You're aggravated. You're upset. But in the second mile, you're a victor. That very first mile, you may feel bitter. You may shake your head. You may think to yourself, why me, God? Why have I got to do this? But when you enter into the second mile, you're better. That's what we're talking about. It changes the very character of men. So the master's mile is a character mile. I'll tell you something else. The master's mile is a commitment mile. Because it is a mile that can only be entered into by those who are committed to doing all that is required of God. God has required, God in a body, Jesus Christ has required us to go a second mile. And we've got to be committing to do that. That falls in basically two areas. First of all, it has to do with our duties. The story is told several years ago of Henry Ford 
And of course, the Ford Motor Company, the plant that he had established to build cars, was up and running, and it ran on pretty well, not, not too bad in the midst of the Depression. But as the Depression was beginning to draw to a close, Henry thought it might be time to maybe go out and buy up some of the competitors or such, so he chose to do that. And he found a plant, and connected to the plant was a big office building. He bought that out. But one of the things he did, and it was good for him at the time, was he said, I tell you, I want to keep all the employees. I don't want anybody to lose their job over this. I want to keep all the employees. Well, that was great. I mean, we're in the midst of the Depression. But what he does, he goes into that office building on a weekend, takes a few of his employees with him from another plant, and he tells them to cut down a tree, take off all the limbs, and he has them to place the tree right there in the floor in front of the elevators. And then he goes over to the side here in that same bottom floor and he established himself a little office with a window in it so he could watch. And for not one, but two and three weeks, he sat and watched. And he watched all the employees of that office building come in. And every one of those employees, they would step over, they would step around, they would speak, they would whisper, they would mumble about the log, but nobody ever did anything about it. They'd hop in the elevator, go up and do their jobs, and in the afternoon be the same thing all over again. He even noticed some of the employees, the maintenance workers, for example, and the custodians of the building, they would sweep around the log, they would mop the log. Hey, he even watched the man dust the log one day, but nobody ever moved it. So after three weeks, he called all the employees together around that log, and he told them. He says, it's been three weeks since I laid this log here. Yes, I did it. And for three weeks, I've watched everybody in this building walk around it, walk over it, ignore it. Nobody's done anything about it. He said, I know some of you secretaries, you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm a secretary. I type. I don't move logs. Some of you bookkeepers, you're thinking, well, I crunch numbers. I don't move logs. Some of you maintenance workers, you say, well, you told me to sweep and mop the floor, and I did that, but I don't move logs. And on and on he describes some of these men and women's jobs. And you know what he said next. He said, but nobody even asked. Nobody moved the log, and for that, all of you are fired. And he called in his son Edsel and told him to start all over. Now I wonder how many of us deserve to be fired. Not that God fires people, but deserve to be fired by God because when a work in the Lord's church needs to be done, we say, well, that's not my job. Maybe so-and-so will do it. Or maybe I ought to tell the elders about that. Maybe so they can do something about it. Or maybe I need to go to one of the deacons. Or maybe I need to do this or that. But it's not my job to do. Friends, if you're a member of the Lord's church, it is your work to serve the Lord. And that may include you doing any and everything around here or in the community. We're here to save souls. It's a commitment, my and in being committed, it requires our duty. I'll tell you something else. Oftentimes it requires a duration. It requires us working longer, working harder than man would automatically desire or expect to do. I can't remember the name right now, but the man who created the Holiday Inn hotel chain. I'm told that for many years he was invited constantly to speak on different platforms in different places and speak always on his success, how he had been so successful in the hotel business, how had he achieved such a high level of customer service. 
And he enjoyed going to colleges and high schools above everything else. And I'm told that every speech he would begin, he would begin something like this. He would say, uh, men and women, boys and girls, I want to tell you, if you want to be a success as I have been in the workplace, you only have to work a half a day. And he would pause. And he would see whispers and he would hear chuckles and such coming from the crowd. And he would say it again, if you want to be successful in any endeavor in life, but especially in the business world, you only have to work a half a day and then complete the sentence by saying you can either work the first 12 hours or the second 12 hours. It really doesn't matter. You know, it takes time to be a Christian. How many of us have decided, well, you know what? To be a Christian, why that requires Bible class, that's good. It requires morning worship and p.m. worship and a Wednesday night Bible class. Likewise, that's four hours a week. Why that, that, my friend, is what God expects of us. Friend, that's the mandated mile. That's not the master's mile. The master requires that we give our lives to serving him. And when I walk the second mile, when I become a part of the master's mile, for me it becomes a mile of commitment. But not only that, it becomes a mile of compensation. You say, there you go, preacher. That's what I've been waiting to hear. <laughs> How will I be compensated for this? Well, the truth is you're being compensated now if you're walking that second mile. Because as I said, you have been made a better person. Your character has been made better. Your commitment has been set as being stronger. And you're being compensated now. But something else that matters to us on the here and now is that we're being compensated when we walk the second mile and the souls are being saved. Let's go back to verse 41 just for a thought. If any man should compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Let's suppose there are two Jewish boys or men. Two of them. A Roman soldier walking down the road, he looks over, he sees the Jewish man working in the field, and he yells out, he says, Hey boy, come over here, carry my pack a mile. You know you have to do it. And let's picture one of these men or boys, he takes and he slams the hoe down, he's been in the fields hoeing all day, he's tired, he's beat. He slams the hoe down, he marches over, he grabs the man's sack, and he begins to walk off, dust flying everywhere. Never does he utter a word. And when he gets to that mile marker he's established sometime before, he slams the pack down on the ground without a word being said. He turns 180 degrees and marches back toward his house. How does that affect that Roman soldier? Just think about it. Now let's suppose that the Roman soldier chooses the other man. And he cries out and he says, Hey boy, I want you to carry my pack a mile. You know that you have to. And the young man carefully lays his hoe down. He said, yes, sir, I'm on my way. No problem. And he walks up and he very carefully picks up the man's bag as if it had valuables or breakables in it. And he puts it upon his shoulder and he begins to walk. And the soldier says, now, wait a minute, I need to rest for a moment. He said, well, I'm just going to get a head start. Let's, let's go. And they start to walk. And as they walk, the little Jewish boy, he begins to say to him, you know, what's it like being a Roman soldier? I've always wanted to be a soldier. Do you have any family? Do you have any children? 
What's it like in Rome? I can remember when I was a little bitty boy we went to Rome, but I've always wanted to go back. And he talks the whole of the mile. They're in conversation. They're enjoying one another's company. Now he gets to the end of that mile. His marker is there on the side of the road. And the Roman soldier begins to say, well, you know, I appreciate your help. i got to admit you've been different. But when he looks up, the Jewish boy has already walked a little farther. And he says, hey, boy, where are you going? He said, well, I figured I'd walk another mile with you. You're tired. You need your rest. I figured we'd keep walking. Aren't you enjoying the conversation? He said, well, yeah, but I tell you, I've never seen anything like you. Now, what if the Jewish boy now said to him, well, you know, I'll I tell you why I'm doing this. Several weeks ago, I was sitting at the feet of a man I just met. Matter of fact, he was talking to a whole crowd of us. His name was Jesus. He says he's the Son of God. He said he's the, the anointed one, the come Messiah. And he told me, he told all of us, really, if a man would ask you or compel you to go, I'll go with him, Twain. And I'm not really sure why he said it, but I just thought I'd do it. Now, what's that Roman soldier going to say? We might say, tell me more about this Jesus. He did what? He told you to do what? And maybe the boy remembers more about the sermon. He discusses it with him. And maybe even the Roman soldier is converted. I'll tell you the very least that might happen. At the end of the second mile, maybe they stop there by a watering hole. They share water with one another, a little more conversation. And the boy says, I really got to be getting back. It's about time for supper. The soldier says, i got to tell you, you've been different. Ah, man, I've had the wrong idea in my mind about you Jews. I've, I've thought very little of you in the past, but you've proved me wrong. And I need to know more about this man Jesus. You think about that. That's the power of the Master's smile. It draws itself to a supreme conclusion, one that is beyond the comprehension of men. So ought we to live. Now I ask you today. We've discussed the master's smile in principle as Jesus made a simple comparison between the mandated mile that even the scribe and the Pharisee would walk and the master's mile that he wants all men to walk. We've seen the master's mile today from the perspective of the practice. That is the Savior's command. And that is a master's mile is a mile of leniency. It's a mile of legalities. It's a mile of labor. And it's a mile of loans. In essence, Jesus said, all of your life, you go an extra mile for every man and for God. Now we've seen the power, the supreme conclusion that's drawn by even the very Son of God. For you, it could be a mile of character, commitment, and conclusion. Now, here's the ultimate conclusion. Not only are you helped, not only is the world saved, friends, you find a home in heaven. If you're here this morning, however, and you're not a child of God's, you've not even began to walk the first mile. You've not began to walk with God as you should, but you can this morning through your faith, that is to believe in, to rely upon Him totally with all of your heart, soul, and mind. The repenting of your sins, that is to turn from your evil and sinful ways. You say, I hadn't sinned. The Bible says you have. Romans 3 and verse 23. 
to turn from your sin, therefore to be willing now to confess whom Jesus Christ is. That's what the little illustration did at the end. He confessed who Jesus was to that Roman soldier. Confess his name with the mouth, Romans 10, 9, and 10, but daily as we walk, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Why? Because if we refuse to confess him, he'll therefore refuse to confess us before the Father. Be baptized for the purpose of having your sins to be remitted, that is to say they are washed away, never to be remembered again by God, to start anew. Not only to walk in the first mile, but to walk in the master's mile and to walk that way for all of your life. If you're here this morning, you are a child of God. And you, through our discussion, realize this morning, you, like the scribes and the Pharisees, you've been guilty of only going in the mandated mile. You've been guilty of performing only a minimum morality and a loveless legalism. Won't you change that this morning? Won't you do that? Through prayer to God, asking forgiveness. God can and will forgive you as you repent of your sins. Won't you do it this morning? While together we stand and as we sing.